You are listening to the teaching podcast of Praise Community Church in Mason City, Iowa. For more information about our church, please visit praisecc.org. We thank you that you are the God that wraps around us, that comes near. You are worth all of our praise and all of our, our honoring of your name. You are worth all of our love. We thank you, God, that you, you put a value on us from the moment that you even thought of us. And so we just come with this, this grateful heart, with an adoring heart, to come and lift your name up above all the things that have been swirling around in our heads, all the things that trouble our hearts, all the aches in our bodies. We put your name above all of that because that is exactly where it is. It is higher than all of that. It is mightier than all of that. It is powerful. So we love you, God, and we just, we come expectant, but we come just to be with you. Just to be with you alongside our brothers and sisters in Christ. We come to learn. We come to receive your revelation. Thank you, and we love you. In your son's name, amen. Amen.
wonderful to be on the winning team <laughs> seriously don't look around and tell and let anybody say that's that that group there's winning no no they're just delaying the inevitable <laughs> they're resisting the inevitable which is the will of God what the word says is inevitable it's fixed so I have no idea what's next on the on the plan. So, what do I do, Jeff? I think it's you. Oh, oh, the art shop's next. Oh, that's still me. Okay. Yeah. I, I saw the thing and I thought, I don't think I'm next, but that's okay. Yeah. I, again, just thanking you so much for planting love and your support and everything into the house of prayer because we see ourselves as sowers of seed. We stand before the throne, Holy Spirit downloads, and he says, plant this. We plant in cities, we plant in states, we plant in nations, we plant in uh, the future. Uh, did you know that we and you can change the future? What looks like the track that we're running on, you can change it. You have, the, you have, through the power presence of the Holy Spirit and the requesting of the Almighty God to go into our future and change it. What happens when we ask that is we get changed. We begin to be transformed. And that's what we're seeing in the house of prayer is hearts and, and faith coming alive. And our vision is expanding and growing. And it's becoming um, more real than ever before, though not in the natural but what we're seeing beyond. And, and God's been speaking into families this week. He's been showing us Caleb's that are, are taking mountains where the giants are. And it's not just for them, it's for their children. Isn't that right, Bruce? We're taking mountains, but we're taking them for the children. The Lord's got a word for Bruce. <laughs> Did you tell him yet, Mario? Okay, yeah. Because you, you read about Caleb, he's... He hung in there with a promise, and God gave him, and he says, I'm going to take that mountain. 
and there were the giants up there and the giants were entrenched that was their home they lived in the mountains so he wasn't just asking to kick the giants out he was asking to kick them out of their entrenchment where they looked the strongest and he looked the weakest but he was going after it so that's what we're at that's what god's doing in this house right now can you feel it can you feel it in your spirit god's giving you vision he's giving you hope for a future and that hope is something that we pray out into it isn't just to feel good now it's to know okay i'm gonna pray for this hope what I'm feeling in this house right now, what I'm sensing, a shift and a change, I'm going to pray into that and begin to see God take this time and move it on to this next week. And this, the end of this year is going to be amazing. The end of this year is going to be so good. It's going to be tremendous if my people will be faithful and pray. So, scripture I wanted to share that the house of prayer just really comes to, it says, in uh, 1 Timothy 2, 1 through, well, this will be 1 through 3, I guess, but I urge then, first of all, and this is Paul speaking to a young man, a, a leader in the church, Timothy, pastor of the church. I urge then, I encourage then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people. That's where we take it in the house of prayer. And what I love about that scripture is petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving. Prayer is not just a one-way expression. It isn't just one way, and that's prayer. It isn't my way. It isn't your way. It's his way. It's Yahweh. And it's that prayer of petition. Petition is what you would, you're asking for something specific. I'm petitioning you for this. Prayers gets a little bit larger. You start to, okay, you know, we're praying for our nation and we may petition God to move in this area, in the Supreme Court or whatever. Intercession, that's the place where we see heaven does, wants to do this, individual needs it, we stand in the gap and say, let it be so. And we've seen that this week. Oh, great testimonies of people coming through surgeries, cancer surgery, shoulder surgery, and we believe God is going to supernaturally heal some people as we continue to pray. But we pray for all people. And then it goes on, for kings and those in authority that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior. So guess who's pleased with the house of prayer besides me? <laughs> Papa God. He's pleased with your prayers. It pleases him when you pray for your leaders. All in authority. Pastor Jeff, all in authority. Mayor, all in authority. Pray for them. It doesn't have to be long. Holy Spirit can do a lot with a little, can he? So this is, where, this is where we are. This is our, our desire in the house of prayer is to please Papa God. If it's worship, it pleases. We want to, we want to please him. Not there to, to say, oh, we got this great prayer thing going on. No, we, we really want to, we want to please Father. We're just trying to be obedient. We appreciate all your support. If you want to know how you can 
help us financially. You can see Mary, don't see me, because you never know. <laughs> Sometimes not a good, but anyway, that's, we, we appreciate it so much. And uh, yeah, thanks for, for all that uh, you're doing in this house and in this city. We're praying for you as a ministry too, for the Living Free Care and Pregnancy Center, all that's going on in this city, we're praying for. Jan, we're praying for you. So just to know, we're praying. Love you guys. Thanks. Okay. So we've been kind of working our way through a series of messages that were given to seven churches there in Revelations chapter 2 and 3. And last week, we kind of started looking at that second letter, uh, that second church, the church of Smyrna. And again, these are not just messages um, or uh, criticisms, these are not just uh, rewards or blessings to those seven churches. Rather, these seven messages to those seven churches are to the universal church of Jesus Christ throughout the current church age. Now, the church age began uh, the day of Pentecost, uh, is when that when church age began. And, and the church age will continue until Jesus comes again. And so these seven messages to these seven churches were for that church age, which we are still in today. So the message to them is the message to us. The warning to them is the warning to us. The rewards that were promised to them are the rewards that are promised to us. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk on that one Sunday, again, the importance of that, because oftentimes we kind of minimize that, we overlook that, or we really don't understand the fullness uh, of what Jesus uh, instructed John to write about there. Now, again, the reason this is so important is because I remember when when I first became a Christian and really began to start studying the book of Revelation, the way that it was presented to me was, again, kind of this idea of the church age, you know, beginning, you know, this is when the church began, we continue to be in that, and then what they did in the book of Revelation was they took the seven churches and they broke them down into separate ages throughout the the, the whole church age. And so they would say, well, you know, in the very beginning uh, of the church age, we had the age of Ephesus, where the church was really busy, the church was really on fire, and they had just lost their love. And then, you know, once that age ended, then we went into, you know, the church age of Smyrna. And then that's the suffering, that's the persecuted uh, uh, church. And then that age ended. And, and then we were kind of into, you know, the, the age of Pergamum. You know, we'll get into that one hopefully next week. And so all of the church ages were kind of broken down. And then what they would say is, now, now we're in the age of Laodicea. So I was like, okay. So, so we're in the, in the age of the church of Laodicea. So you know what that told me? Ignore the other six churches. All I need to focus on and really understand and worry about is the church of Laodicea because that's the age we're in. We're, we're, the, we're the church of Laodicea. 
Um, and so as I really be, kind of began to see a different perspective to this of, no, no, this is seven messages to seven churches. It applies to all the churches in every age, in every culture, at every time throughout the church age. Then, it's, uh, then I said, okay, now there's a reason to study and to understand and to know these individual churches. That makes sense? I, some of you probably maybe heard or grew up under that same uh, kind of teaching. So again, the potential of us losing our first love, you know, of getting so busy with ministry that we forget Jesus, it's not just a, it's not, it's just not a temptation in the church there in Ephesus. It was not just a problem that they face. It's, it's a potential problem for every church, every Christian in every age to face. We all face that potential of losing uh, Jesus as our first love. So as I stated last week, the church of Smyrna, the thing that they were kind of known for is they were kind of the struggling uh, church or the suffering churches. Now today, again, there are a lot of churches around the world that would kind of fit uh, this same kind of, of church. There's a lot of struggling, suffering churches, especially in third world countries. There's a lot of persecution of the Christian church. Not so much in America. We, we see it. We see elements of it, but not like what they see uh, in third world countries today. Certainly not what they saw back there uh, in the church of Smyrna. There are churches in the United States today that we could say are kind of struggling. They're suffering um, due to the COVID. And, and what Jesus had to say to the church in Smyrna is the same thing Jesus would say. Say, uh, to every church that is struggling or suffering, especially when that suffering uh, is tied to persecution because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And so the church of Smyrna was one of those, you know, New Testament churches. They loved the Lord with all their heart. Uh, they were uh, doing the work of God. Uh, they were known as a very, very faithful, steadfast, devoted church. It was also a church that was facing a lot of struggles, a lot of challenges, a lot of difficulties, trials, tribulations. And many of those troubles and trials and tribulations came about because they were planted and ministering in one of the most religiously diverse places in the Roman Empire. We talked about that last week, that many of the people uh, during uh, th this time uh, in the midst of this uh, church of Smyrna, they were worshiping false pagan gods. And God was really using the church there in Smyrna uh, to uh, be that witness, that testimony that Jesus Christ was God and God alone and he was the way, the truth, and the life and that there was no other way to God the Father except through him. And that message brought incredible persecution, suffering, trials, and tribulations upon the church of Smyrna. So we kind of started last week kind of looking at some of that in detail. And again, the first problem that came of that was again the issue of persecution. And again, Jesus says in Revelation 2.9, I know your works he was pleased with their works. Again, this was a church. Jesus had no criticism of this church. Five of the seven he did, Smyrna, Philadelphia, were two that he did not have any criticism. He said, I know your work. I'm pleased with what you're doing. 
Keep doing what you're doing. And then he mentions tribulations. And the tribulations referred to the suffering that they were undergoing specifically because of their witness uh, to the risen Lord Jesus Christ. They were not afraid to suffer and be persecuted for the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like Paul, they would say, we are not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation. They were steadfast. They were committed to that message. They understood the eternal rewards that Jesus talked about there far outweighed the temporary distresses. The second problem was, was the problem of poverty. And again, we talked about that last week. He saw their works. He saw their tribulation, their suffering. He also saw their poverty. Jesus saw that they were a church uh, that really did not have much uh, in the way of possessions and money. It was a poor, very impoverished church. And the reason we talked about that was because of the economic system back in those days. It was built around and upon pagan worship. And the believers of Smyrna refused to be a part of these labor unions, these guilds that were making all of these symbols and statues in honor and worship of these pagan gods. And so, again, if you didn't work for one of those labor unions or guilds, you didn't get money. And you didn't have money, you couldn't buy uh, and trade. And if you couldn't buy, you couldn't get food. If you didn't have food, uh, you, you, you uh, went hungry. Uh, and so again, if your faith and trust was in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone, um, you were going to be economically and financially out in the cold. And you uh, could not by anything, you had to kind of live hand to mouth. And this was directly, again, linked to the degree of poverty that they experienced there in the church of Smyrna. Third one that they had the problem of was profanity. And Jesus says there in verse 9, I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews. They are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, Jesus is referring specifically there to Orthodox Jews who were living in Smyrna there. They had rejected rejected Jesus Christ as the Messiah, and they were lying. They were saying false, malicious things about these believers there uh, in, in Smyrna. And again, we talked about, you know, it's like every church. Every church has its wheat and its tares. Uh, and, and Jesus talked about, you know, that they're going to grow together. So we're going to have wheat and tares in this church. There's wheat and tares in every church. There are going to be those who love Jesus and, and those who don't. Those who want to move in the things of God and those who don't. And so that was the problem of prof, uh, the profanity there. The fourth problem, this is kind of where we left off last week. The fourth problem the church in Smyrna had was the problem of prison. Now you're saying, and I'm thinking to myself, man, if persecution, if poverty, profanity was not enough, you got to add to that now the difficulty, the element of prison. And Jesus says there in verse 10, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison. Now, there are many people who think that prison is one of the worst things that can happen to a believer. Now, I'll just be honest with you. I've, I've never, you know, been in jail. I've never been uh, in, in prison before. Uh, my wife is in and out of jail all the time. 
I'm in trouble. <laughs> but it's important to remember that some of the greatest saints that have ever come out of the Christian faith had their greatest hours in prison. I mean, think of how much of the New Testament Paul wrote while under house arrest, kind of a, a form of prison. Christian author John Bunyan wrote one of the greatest books ever written while he was in prison. I think of a contemporary example. You think of Charles Colson, one of President Richard Nixon's uh, counsel spent his time in prison for his role in Watergate. And there in prison, he's, he's a new believer. He had become born again. His life takes a dramatic shift there in prison, and God uses him to establish a very world-renowned prison now, Prison Fellowship, which continues today, even though Colson passed away in 2012. In his best-selling novel, Born Again, Chuck Colson wrote, he said, I found myself increasingly drawn to the idea that God had put me in prison for a purpose and that I should do something for those I had left behind. And he emerged from that prison with a new mission, a new vision, mobilizing the Christian church to minister to prisoners. Again, some of God's greatest works and some of God's greatest saints have come from those who have been imprisoned. And the point of it all is, is nothing is ever wasted with God. These Smyrna Christians, those believers there in the church of Smyrna, back in Revelation chapter two, face similar problems. They bravely, they steadfastly face the problems of persecution, poverty, profanity, and prison. But then Jesus goes on and he begins to talk about their prosperity. Here are their problems as a church. Here is their prosperity. And in spite of all of those challenges, Jesus reminds them of a very, very important thing. He says, but you are rich. The word rich here is where we kind of get the English word plurocrat. Jesus is basically saying on the outside to human eyes, you may appear to be poor, broke, busted, impoverished, but he says you're truly spiritual plurocrats. And that is, even though this church appeared to be poor and impoverished on the outside, externally, internally, eternally, they were rich spiritually, abounding greatly in the things of God. And you think about what they were rich in. I believe they were rich in worship. Again, I don't think they had a lot of fancy equipment. They may not have had any equipment at all. But what they had, their voices, they used to worship God. And there was a richness that Jesus found in that. I believe there was a richness in their fellowship. I, I believe that there was a connection among them. They were brothers and sisters, truly. They knew how to depend upon each other. They knew how to encourage, how to pray for one another. I believe they were rich in fellowship. I believe they were rich in, in knowing how to share what little they had. They knew how to be a blessing, how to sacrifice for the well-being of others. I believe there was a richness in that they were able to receive what others were able to do for them. 
I often run into this a lot where people say, man, it's really easy for me to bless others, but it's really hard for me to receive blessings. They were rich in this. They were able to give it. They were able to receive it. I believe they were rich in spiritual gifts. I believe as that congregation would gather together, I, I believe that you would begin to see all of the spiritual gifts come into operation. I believe that they were rich in every way a church could be rich. Jesus looked at this church and said, yeah, you may be poor, but you are rich. You're flourishing. You're abounding. You're increasing in the ways, the things, the blessings, the rewards of God. Stop and think about that. It's a pretty popular thing to be a member of the church today. But what if the church was destroyed? What if, what if the church was impoverished? What if to get into the doors of this church, you had to walk through multitudes of people who were kind of jeering, taunting, ridiculing you? If we knew we would be thrown into prison for being here this morning, for worshiping, would we still come? Would our, would our hearts rejoice? Would we leap for joy? Would we be glad? Would we feel blessed? Would we know that there is a great reward waiting for us in heaven? So again, we hear the problems and the prosperity of the church of Smyrna. And then the third is the promise or the reward to the church. Jesus closes with a reward to this church as he does to everyone who overcomes. And every church, he just simply basically says, whatever the challenges were, he said, there's, there's a blessing. If you overcome, here's what's gonna happen. And his promise is directly related to the suffering this church endured. Jesus is always aware when we're suffering. When you and I are in times of difficulty, of trials, of tribulation, it does not escape his view. He knows. He understands. He is there. He understands our heartaches. He understands our afflictions. He's been there. He's done that. He's walked in our shoes. He has felt our pain. He knew and understood the suffering, the afflictions, the difficulties of this church. He experienced the same sorts of pain. He knew the trouble the church was going through, and he had a plan. He had a purpose. So I want to talk just very, very quickly about three truths in this promise and reward. I probably won't get through all of them, but I'll, I'll try to get through the good ones. The first truth is there's a reason for suffering. Though we may not always understand it and see it, I want you to understand there is always, 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 always a divine purpose and plan for suffering. Any kind of suffering you go through, even if it's self-inflicted, even if it's suffering you have brought upon yourself through your own stupid choices, your own, you know, bad decisions, it is not something that God goes, yep, I'm unfamiliar with that one. Boy, there's just, I, I don't know what to do with that one. Never seen that one before. I'm, I'm gonna have to kind of take some time and think about that. 
God knows how to take any kind of suffering and to take it, turn it, and use it for his good and his glory. It is not outside of his ability to turn any and all of it to become a blessing to us, a blessing in our lives. In this case, Jesus says in verse 10, do not fear any of these things which you are about to suffer, for it is that you may be tested. I want you to notice that. What's his purpose there? He wants to use it as a way of testing the believers there, and God uses suffering as a way to test us today. God always has a goal in suffering, always has a plan, and one of those plans, those purposes, God may be using that as a way to test you. Now, that word literally means to refine. Testing is kind of a way to separate the dross from the gold. It is meant to develop you, to strengthen you, to mature you. How many of you know whenever you took a test in school, you didn't take that test to figure out what the teacher knew. You took the test to figure out what you knew, right? Often God uses suffering in our lives. It is not for the purpose of God seeing what is inside of us. He already knows. He knows your heart. He knows your thoughts. He knows a word before you even speak it. God is doing that so that you can see what is inside of you. And sometimes that's just not going to come up and out until you're in a time of suffering. It's not so God can find out something about you. He already knows all there is to know about you and more. Jesus said he knows exactly the number of hairs on your head. That is how intimately he knows you. So it's not so he can find out something about us, but it's so we can find out something about ourselves. And when you read the story of the book of Job, God knows what was in the heart of Job. Regardless of what the accusation of Satan was, he did not believe that for a moment. The whole point of everything Job went through was so Job could know what was in the heart of Job. God already knew. He just wanted to make sure Job knew it. Suffering is one of those methods of self-discovery. You see, while Satan tempts us in order to destroy us and to defeat us, God tests us in order to strengthen, to develop, to mature us, to take us deeper into the realities and the experiences of God. God never tempts us. The Bible's very clear on that. But he does test us. Jesus' testing in the desert following his baptism is proof of that. The faith that cannot be tested cannot be trusted. The faith that cannot be tested cannot be trusted. So first of all, understand there's a reason for your suffering. It is for the trials, the testing, the maturing of your faith. Hebrews 5.8 says, uh, even though Jesus was God's son. In other words, Jesus wasn't exempt just because he's God's son. It says he learned obedience from the things he suffered. 
And I'm thinking if he can learn obedience from suffering, so can we. If God can use suffering to produce obedience in the life of Jesus, then it stands to reason he may use suffering in our lives to bring us also to those places of greater obedience. A lot of times when we encounter suffering, especially suffering on account of our living for, our witness, our testimony of Jesus, we think God's abandoned us. Or we think that God is disciplining us. God is displeased with me. God is punishing me. God's withdrawn from me because I have done or said something displeasing to God. And that was one of the mistakes Job's friends made. Remember when they came to see him? Their accusation was, was this only happens to bad people. God only does this to sinners. So you must have done something to sin. So confess it. Get it over with. He said, you're suffering because you sinned and God's punishing you. And that's one of the problems in the church today. We think following Jesus should be all sunshine, rainbows, and lollipops with a unicorn thrown here and there. God can, he will, he does use the sufferings we encounter in life, especially the sufferings as a result of our witness and testimony for Jesus. Again, it's why I had you read and pray through Matthew 5, 3 through 16. It's part of being blessed when we're persecuted. And what he's doing is he's trying to build in us an unyielding obedience to our Heavenly Father. Listen, I mean, obedience in difficult things is a whole lot different than obedience in pleasurable things. It's one thing to be obedient when God tells me to give Jim a dollar. It's a whole lot more difficult in obedience if God tells me to give Jim $1,000. See what I'm saying? Obedience through suffering is a whole lot different than obedience through pleasure. Here's why. Obedience, when it involves suffering, yields a greater gain spiritually obedience, when it involves suffering, yields a greater gain spiritually. If you don't believe me, try it. As a matter of fact, Scripture also goes on and says Jesus not only learned obedience through the things he suffered, he was also perfected by the things he suffered. We all need to be perfected. We all need to be sanctified. And one of the ways God's going to do that is through suffering. He did it with Jesus. He's the forerunner. He's the example to us, for us. Listen to Hebrews 2.10. For it was fitting for God, for whom all things and by whom all things, in bringing many sons to glory. How many of you want to be brought to glory? To make the captain of their salvation, he's referring to Jesus, perfect through suffering. Jesus was made perfect. He was perfected through and by the things he suffered. Now listen carefully to what I'm about to say. Some of you are going to need to think on this before you say amen. You're going to need to ponder on this. Jesus wasn't born perfect He was born sinless, 
and innocent, but he wasn't born perfect. Now hang with me here for a second before you start screaming, Ichabod, Ichabod, Ichabod. A better way of saying this, as a baby, he could not yet be perfected. That's why he couldn't just die as a baby for the sins of the world. Remember way back when, when Herod ordered the death of all male-borns to and under. If, if that would have atoned for the sins of mankind, just for the blood of Jesus to be spilt as, as a, a two-year-old. Being born sinless and innocent is not the same thing as being perfect or perfected. Here's why. Because becoming perfect or being perfected involves a process. A process that involves choices between right and wrong, good and evil, yielding and surrendering your rights and will to a greater authority are all a part of the process of being perfected. Let me put it to you this way. Here's how a lot of us say this. Jesus never did anything wrong. That's true. It's the other greater truth is Jesus did everything right. Oftentimes we sit and say, oh, Jesus, he didn't do anything wrong. But the greater truth is, is Jesus did everything right. That's what makes him so amazing and, and so unique. It was doing everything right in choosing to do the right thing in obedience to his heavenly father that he goes through this process as a, as a child, as a teenager, as a young adult, his father's taking him through this process of, and, and using suffering as a part of that process of perfecting him. And what it does is it results in him becoming the perfect sacrifice all the while he remained sinless and innocent. Is this making sense? Okay. Listen again to Hebrews 5.8. Oh, man, I'm out of time. Even though Jesus was God's son, he learned experience from the things he suffered. And, and, and what's it say? And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest. Now, the greatest act of obedience in Jesus' life, the final act of obedience, the pinnacle of obedience in Jesus' life was also the greatest act of suffering, his death upon the cross. Philippians 2.8 says, Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death of the cross. Jesus was perfect. He was perfected through a process of suffering, of obedience, and once he reached perfection, he was then able to take that one final step of obedience, death upon the cross, and it result, it produced salvation for all of mankind. The goal of his becoming perfected was so he could become a high priest, and as a high priest, he could enter into the holy of holies and offer himself as the perfect sacrifice for the sins of mankind through his blood. And the point here is, and I'll, I'll end here, and I promise I'll pick it up here next week, and, and I promise we'll get into the church of Pergamum next week as well. 
The point here is that God was doing something. And he's using the suffering in Jesus' life as well as his obedience, his, his yielding, his surrendering. Not my will, but your will be done for a greater and eternal purpose. And here's the beautiful thing. God will do the same for us in our times of suffering, in our trials, in our tribulations. Again, God is maturing us. He's growing us. He's sanctifying us. He's making us more and more holy. He's making us more and more into the image of his son who did all of this, went through all of this. And and the path that God used for Jesus, it's the path he's going to use for you and I. That's why we say, oh, how blessed am I when, and go back and read through Matthew chapter 5, 3 through 16. It's not sunshine, rainbow, lollipops with a unicorn here and there. It's suffering. It's, It's mourning. It's crying out to God for a pure heart so that my eyes will be open more and more to see him. That's what this is about. This is the process. This is the plan, the purpose that God has for us. And what it did in Jesus, it will do in us as well. Amen? Amen. Let's stand. I invite the worship team to come back up this morning. Father, we just again thank you And Father, I just pray this morning that maybe you would just open our eyes afresh and anew again to the role of suffering. That oftentimes, God, when we think about that, it's something we want to avoid. It's something we want to bypass. It's something that will do anything else but that. And yet, God, there is a plan and a purpose for that in our lives. And so, Father, we pray, Lord, that you'll help us not to not to run from it, not to foolishly run toward it either, to be reckless in that. But God, just to be wise and to be understanding of the purpose, the role of suffering and how you want to use that in us to make us more and more like Jesus. And Father, we thank you, Lord, that there's nothing that we go through, God, even if it's self-inflicted, even if we're suffering because of the results of our own foolish choices, That God, your word says you have a plan and you have a promise that says you'll take all of it and you'll use it for good. And so, Father, this morning, I just especially pray for those that may feel like they're going through a period of suffering. That again, God, you would help them to see that those trials, those tribulations, God, that this is really kind of a refining. It's a separating That, God, you're trying to help them to maybe see something that they need to see. Something about you. Something about themselves. A truth about you. A truth about themselves. Whatever it is, God, however you're using that this morning. That, God, again, like Jesus, we would just yield ourselves, surrender ourselves, give ourselves to you. To say, here we are, God. Teach me. Use this. So, Father, I just pray for those that are in that place. Lord, for us, as maybe we come into that place this week, that, Lord, again, you'll open our eyes to see more and more your purpose, your plans for suffering, 
especially when it involves our taking a stand for Jesus. And we thank you, Father, that your faithfulness to him, your goodness, your kindness to him is also extended to us in all of its fullness. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.
Jesus, we love you. We thank you that you are all of those names, that you have embodied every single one of those words and so many more that we don't even have actual language for yet. So God, we just thank you that you are revealing yourself to us and that you'll continue to do so as we go, as we, as we live out every moment, that you'll reveal another name to us, another part of who you are so that we can know you deeper and we can worship you for being exactly who you are. We only worship to the level that we know you, God, so we want to know you more. Yes. We want to know you deeper. We want to know you intimately, personally, with an undivided heart. Holy yours, holy surrendered and sac yes. sacrificing all to just be with you, just as you sacrificed all to be with us. We love you and we thank you for blessing us with this time and for being with us. And God, we just pray for our community right now that you would come and have your way. Have your way through us, for them, for all of us. We love you. In your son's name, amen. 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 Have a great week, you guys, and we'll see you next week. You are listening to the teaching podcast of Praise Community Church in Mason City, Iowa. For more information about our church, please visit praisecc.org.